When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of The Commons is sponsored by New College Franklin. At New College Franklin, students and professors together find their place in an educational tradition that stretches back for ages, returning to tried and true educational practices and texts that have been discarded for too long. Through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, new college students see how they fit in the unfolding story of redemption. Take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. Come for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience and continue building on the educational foundation you've started. You can learn more at www.newcollegefranklin.org. That's newcollegefranklin.org. And now, The Commons with Brian Phillips. Well, hello, and welcome back to The Commons, part of the Circe Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. Uh, welcome to episode two of season two of the Commons. This season, we are focusing on important figures and movements in church history. Um, episode one, I was joined by Wes Callahan. We talked about St. John Chrysostom, one of the most influential and skilled preachers in uh, the early church. This time around, I have uh, with me Greg Wilbur, who is the dean of the chapel and dean of the college at New College Franklin. Uh, he is also a um, uh, chief musician at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in uh, Franklin, Tennessee, right outside of Nashville there. Um, Greg is also a frequent speaker at Searcy Conferences, and so I'm delighted to have him with us as we talk about another very important early church father, this time uh, St. Ambrose. And uh, Ambrose was called, as you will discover in this episode, um, was considered to be one of the most talented, most skilled uh, of the early church fathers. And so uh, we're going to talk about all of the different ways in which his his uh, gifts were shown in the office of bishop, uh, and then focus in a little bit on one of Greg Wilbur's great um, strengths, and that is music. How did St. Ambrose influence music in the early church, and how has that influence uh, been carried over even into modern-day practices in the church. So it's a great episode. Thank you all for joining me. Hope you enjoy it. Now joined uh, by Greg Wilbur from New College Franklin. Well, Greg Wilbur, it's great to have you back on The Commons. Uh, thank you for joining me for this episode. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. In this season on The Commons, we are we're talking about major figures and movements in, in church history, and um, you know, last time, this has been some time ago now, when you were on the Commons, we talked about Bach. And so we're going to get into music a little bit um, in this episode as well. But we're focusing in on an early church father, uh, St. Ambrose, who contributed to church music, certainly, as we will be talking about, but uh, contributed so much more as well. So 
delighted to have you with me to discuss, uh, particularly when we get into music and how Ambrose transformed church music. Right. Now, in preparing for this episode, I had done some reading about St. Ambrose, just kind of one to refresh my memory on some things that maybe I'd read in years past, and then also in um, uh, seeing if there were things that I had completely been unaware of, and and I found some of both, you know, some things that I <laughs> knew and some things that were brand new. But one one writer that I ran across uh, referred to St. Ambrose as the most talented bishop of the early church, um, and that is that's a very big claim. In fact, the first episode of this season I recorded with um, Wes Callahan, we talked about St. John Chrysostom. So when you're immediately comparing Ambrose to to men like Chrysostom, that's a very tall yes. order. Yeah. Um, so let's let's kind of start from the beginning, and we'll we'll set the stage of just sort of an overview of who Ambrose was. Um, he was uh, he was from my understanding, he was from a pretty prominent Christian family, which was unusual. Uh, for these early yes. early church bishops, um, it, it, and he didn't start his career in the church. Uh, so, what, talk to us a little bit about what Ambrose did initially, and and how he eventually came to the office of of being a bishop. Yes, uh, it was a very prominent family, and a uh, had been Christian for several generations, um, which was also interesting from that time period. His father was a a prefect in uh, Trier, which is modern day Germany. And um, that's where Ambrose was born, somewhere around 340. Um, he was the third child. There was an older sister and an older brother. Uh, his father died um, when he was about 13 or 14. And, um, and so the mother, his, Ambrose's mother, moved the family uh, back to Rome. And uh, it's there that he started his education. And um, um, this, is a, this is an important part of understanding Ambrose, because all this comes into play later on with, with his various roles. But he studied rhetoric, and um, he, studied, he studied Greek and the Greek authors, which was significant because this was a period in time in which the knowledge of Greek was beginning to disappear in the Western Empire, Western part of the empire. And so the, the fact that he achieved a significant proficiency in, in Greek and in the classics, uh, Homer, Plato, etc., um, became very important later on. So he started his career as a lawyer, and uh, he was noted for his eloquence. He was noted for his, his energy, uh, passed the bar, and was appointed to a political post in Rome. Um, since the early part of the fourth century, of course, Rome, um, the imperial court had moved out of Rome to Milan. Um, it was still kind of the historical heart, but not not the political center. Um, so after after serving in a political post in Rome, he was noticed by Valentinian I. The emperor and then called him to Milan to serve as the governor of northern Italy. So that put him in a prominent position um, next to and around the imperial um, the imperial government. He was about mm-hmm. thirty years old at the time, so still very young. Right, right. So, so he's serving as governor in uh, in the northern part of Italy, um, centered in Milan. Uh, at that time, there was a lot of, 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 of religious toleration with regards to Arianism, and I know we'll get to talk about that in a minute. Uh, but the uh, the Arian-leaning bishop, who had been uh, in that post for 20 years, died, and um, it was an opportunity to to elect to recommend a new bishop. And so the Arian forces got together, and the, the Trinitarian, the Catholic forces got together, and it got rather heated in terms of this discussion of um, of who should be the next bishop. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so as governor of the area, Ambrose gets called in to, to bring the peace. And uh, he comes and he, he comes before the crowd and uh, he, he calms them and he begins to speak. Um, and this is where fact and legend gets a little fuzzy. Uh, but most of the uh, most of the reports are that he was standing in the place where the bishop would normally stand. And the most colorful stories is that a child's voice rang out and said, Ambrose is bishop, because he was standing where the bishops would normally stand. And it was like a hush fell in the crowd. And then both sides started this um, um, this chant, this call to make him bishop. Wow. Um, so he, he was a catechumen at the time, as we said before, a prominent Christian family, but in practice at the time, he had not actually been baptized. Right. And so, yeah, so he's like, okay, you know, he was very reluctant because here he is in this political career. And he said, uh, uh, there were two things he thought would save him from this, from potentially becoming bishop. One was the, um, the ecclesiastical side of things, because there was a decree that prohibited newly, the newly baptized from being ordained. Mm-hmm. And so he thought, well, you know, that that will at least keep him from becoming baptized and then ordained quickly. Um, and that was he, he quipped that uh, emotion had overruled canon law because uh, people would know this. But the the, uh, the the election had to be ratified by the bishops, and they thought they would reject it. But uh, on the contrary, they thought he was a perfect candidate. Wow. Uh, and then the other the other side of things was that he he didn't think that the emperor would want to lose him as governor. Um, and so he actually went and hid in the home of a um, one of his friends who was a senator um, until the senator got word that the emperor had decided that he could think of no better no better uh, candidate for the for the role of bishop than his governor and at that point ambrose's friend the senator pushed him out and uh ambrose <laughs> relented and said okay okay i'll do this so he um uh he went through a very quick process within a period of a week being baptized and then ordained as a priest and bishop um, which happened on December 7th in, uh, in 374. Um, and so he had, he had a lot to do in terms of uh, catching up um, with regards to his studies. This is where part of um, uh, where his study of Greek came in handy. Um, we don't have the Vulgate at this point in time. There's some translation of various books. But he, because he knows Greek, he can read the New Testament in Greek. Um, he can also read Athanasius and Origen and Basil and other works that had not been translated uh, from Greek into Latin, um, and that he set himself to study and to prepare and to equip himself to preach, and uh, which became a, a really a center part of um, of his ministry there in, in Milan, um, as well as he made himself remarkably accessible to the people, uh, all people, um, no matter what 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 stage, what what um, what socioeconomic background. Um, and so he had a kind of an open door policy. So he would study and pray in between the times uh, in which people would come to him for pastoral needs. Uh, he did have two caveats, though: uh, one that he would not get involved in matchmaking, mm-hmm. and two that he would not uh, uh, not help somebody along to a political post. But regards to any other um, any other ecclesiastical and pastoral needs, he made himself incredibly accessible. Mm-hmm. So he, when he so when he became bishop, he also gave away um, much of his fortune. When he became bishop, he embraced it wholeheartedly, despite the reticence at the beginning. Um, but then he served he served the people well. Now, um, if we can back up for just a second, that um, one of the things that I, I would I just wanted to throw out and see if if this is one of those examples of where um, 
myth and fact might might mm-hmm. differ a little bit. Um, one, at least one account that I read mentioned that that the emperor, who uh, I believe it was Theodosius, wasn't it, at at the time. Well, maybe not. Valentinian maybe not when first. He, Valentinian. That's right. Theodosius is later. Sorry, um, mm-hmm. but uh, I think the emperor didn't he threaten Ambrose that that until he agreed to be bishop that he would be imprisoned if necessary. Um, <laughs> did you, have uh, you run across that at all? Is it? I, I have. There's another. Yeah, number of interesting stories. Um, um, with regards to uh, the role of, of, of um, the emperor and the bishop, um, um, you know, it's an interesting relationship, and there's some other things we can tease out here in a little bit. Um, but they were um, he was he was Catholic, but very religiously tolerant, um, and so you know, the fact that he would want him to take this role um, and have this position of authority doesn't surprise me. But I hadn't come across that particular story. Um, yeah, the the reason I ask is. Um that as uh, I talked with Wes Callahan in the episode on John Chrysostom, um, that Chrysostom showed a similar reluctance in, upon entering mm-hmm. the priesthood. And in fact, he had had an agreement with a friend of his that that they would both enter the priesthood um, if called to do so, but then Chrysostom backed out and ran away and, <laughs> and had to, you know, I mean, he essentially ran for his life. Um, and so I right. thought, oh my goodness, uh, did Ambrose do essentially the same thing? He had to be almost, uh, taken, you know, kicking and screaming into the bishopric. Um, yeah. so that's why, that's why I was wondering, but either way, there was certainly some reluctance, which I find really right. humorous as, as a pastor myself and you, you, uh, serve in church ministry as well. So uh, there might be part of both of us that goes, yeah, I get it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Some, yes. <laughs> some some days are better than others, and other days yes. it's kicking and screaming, right? Um, so, uh, okay, so now thank you for humoring me there with that. Um, but yeah. now when he when he was appointed bishop, um, as as you mentioned, um, part of it was you know might have been right place, right time, or from Ambrose's perspective, maybe wrong place, wrong time at, at the time, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he seemed to be pretty well respected, well loved, um, yes, at least liked. Um, but of course, he wasn't without some controversy once he became a bishop, and and of course, in that kind of position, it's impossible to not have some controversy. But um, let's let's go back to the Arians, as you mm-hmm. you mentioned them earlier. Um, so let's just kind of. Uh, lay this out in real general terms. Let's start. Who were the Arians, and then, and then, uh, how did Ambrose respond to them when he became bishop? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Arianism was one, was one of the major heresies of the fourth century. Um, interestingly, it was on the decline at the time that Ambrose became bishop, but Milan was still one of its last strongholds, uh, and that was because of some of the the uh, movement of, of the emperors and some of their thoughts. Um, but they were they were called for their lead proponent, Arius. Um, basically, denied the concept of the Trinity that, that uh, Jesus was created by God. Um, so there was a kind of a hierarchy within the context of of um, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, um, such that the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea and the drafting of the adoption of the Nicene Creed was was directly to counteract and reject the ideas of Arius and a proactive declaration of what the Trinity is. 
uh, and what it means to be um, in that um, the clarification of what the Godhead is in the relationship between between the three. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, as I said before, he was following a, a Aryan leaning bishop who had been there for for twenty years, and um, and so there's a lot of religious tolerance within um, within Milan for Arianism and within the emperor and his family. Um, interestingly, his brother Satyrus, who also was a governor. In, uh, in another area, once Ambrose was elected as bishop, he quit his position and moved to Milan um, to help take care of the administrative duties of the diocese so that Ambrose could concentrate on pastoral duties because he knew that there would be much to do with regards to um, um, rooting out the rest of Arianism in that area. And that's two of the great things that Ambrose did in terms of the end of paganism um, and, and the Roman area, as well as rooting out the last vestiges of, um, of Arian thought. But part of this is wrapped up in um, the, the secession of, um, of emperors. And um, w- without getting too cloudy in the details, uh, this is, uh, I think, kind of interesting and important to see how some of these things played out. As I said, Valentinian I was the one who had appointed him governor of the area. He was killed in battle in uh, the northern frontier. He had uh, two sons, um, half-brothers. One Gratian he named as co-emperor, and uh, uh, his other was Valentinian II. So when Valentinian I was killed, Gratian um, moved to take over as, as, uh, from his position as co-emperor. But the army supported Valentinian II as emperor. And at the time, he was only four years old. Uh, so it was really, it was really Valentinian's mother, um, uh, Justina, who, who was holding the power reins. So Gratian continued to the north, and he controlled Britain and Spain and Gaul, and had a good relationship with Ambrose. Uh, Italy was controlled by Valentinian II, but really his mother, um, who was who was a very staunch Arian, and um, and that's where a lot of the conflict came in. And uh, so she knew as long as Gratian was alive, there was not much that she could do. Uh, because in terms of the power uh, power struggle. So she just kind of bided her time for a while, but she kept kind of poking things. For example, she invited a, uh, an Aryan bishop to reside as a member of the imperial court in Milan. So you have Ambrose <laughs> as the uh, ecclesiastical head of Milan. Right. Um, but, with, but within the imperial court, you have an Aryan bishop. Who doesn't have a doesn't have a church, but has this has this uh, political role right. under the protection of the of the empress. So he still had um, the title of a bishop, but just not the not a church to oversee. Correct. Right. Okay. So two bishops in the same city, one an Arian, one the greatest opponent of Arianism in the empire at the yeah. time. Right. Okay. <laughs> and, and one and one ecclesiastical and one political. Mm. Um, and that's and that's one of the things that we see too with. With the idea that um, of um, uh, of seeing God as um, as uh, non-trinitarian, that you lose this concept of relationship, and so within Arian thought, there was a lot of of, of outworking with regards to um, the relationship between the church and the state, so that bishops were seen as the emperor's bishops, and uh, they could move them around as they so desired. Uh, but with tr- Trinitarian thought coming out of, out of Nicaea, 
um, the idea of, of, of um, various roles and responsibilities and seeing a separateness of the, um, the structure of the church from the political structure mm-hmm. gave Ambrose uh, a particular position on which to stand on, uh, on issues that arose between himself and between whoever was in control of the political sphere. And, and one of those happened to be just seen at this point in time. Um, well, what happened is, is that Ingratian um, was left with the entire empire to defend. Um, and so he named Theodosius, who was a Spanish general and a Catholic, as Empire of the East to help him out. Uh, but about five years later, Gratian was assassinated. Um, Maximus, who was the, uh, the general, the treacherous general behind the assassination, then threatened to take over Italy and uh, to displace Valentinian II. Now, this, this is an interesting move here. So you've got, you've got uh, um, uh, Gratian's former general who's assassinated him, had him assassinated, and is about to take over Valentinian's II area in, uh, in, in Italy, where, where Ambrose is. So despite all the differences, uh, Justina goes to Ambrose and asks him to be an ambassador to Maximus to keep him from invading Italy. Hmm which he does. Hmm. And so here we have this fascinating instance of, uh, of a churchman mediating a political and military conflict. And so he goes to Maximus and Maximus does relent and uh, decides to leave Italy in peace and just continue uh, settling more in the North. Um, so interestingly, by, um, by doing so, that also solidified Valentinian II and Justinus power uh, over, the, um, over Italy and over uh, over Milan, um, but it also saved Italy from the invasion of Maximus. So, you know, so now Justina has this newfound um, opportunity and authority with Gratian out of the way. And so, in, in three eighty six, uh, she decides the time is right to give her imperial Arian bishop his own church. And so, she demands that Ambrose hand over one of the basilicas in Milan for Arian worship. Which completely unacceptable to right. Ambrose, and, and the idea was that the, the, this bishop would celebrate his first Eucharist on Easter Day, in um, in 386. So Ambrose refused. He, he, he reportedly said, um, "I have said what a bishop ought to say. Let the emperor do what an emperor ought to do. Naboth would not give up the inheritance of an ancestor, and shall I give up that of Jesus Christ?" Hmm. And so they they get word that. Uh, Justine is sending in troops. And so Ambrose and uh, various members of his congregation uh, go to the basilica that they want to turn into an Aryan place of worship, and they occupy it on Palm Sunday. Um, and they stay in, while well, surrounded outside by, by the, uh, the soldiers, they stay in uh, the basilica for a week, uh, praying, fasting, singing, um, and as they're barricaded in. One of the uh, one of the people there was Monica, Augustine's mother, um, which is part of you know, Augustine's connection to, uh, to Ambrose. Which right. I'm sure we'll get to know that. And so after a period of, the week, of a week, um, um, Justina you know, backs down and calls, uh, uh, calls the troops back um, and saving Ambrose and, and the congregation saved um, the basilica uh, from, from Aryan worship, from heretical worship. Um, Justina tried again a year later. <laughs> uh, she had her son issue a decree that legalized Aryan assemblies and made it a capital offense to interfere with them. 
so she she kind of hedging her bets this time that, that let Ambrose interfere. We've got him on the capital charge and can right. execute him. Yeah, significant and, significant game she's playing here. Yeah, yeah, and this is this is after she asked Ambrose to intervene. Um, yes, to so that she could have a more secure foundation to. <laughs> To launch such <laughs> things against him, right? I mean, yes, exactly. Uh, wow, yes. no, no good deed goes unpunished, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Ambrose called her bluff, though. Once again, as you mentioned, he was very popular. He was um, um, Arianism was on the wane, but still, still a force there. So he he says to her, "If you demand my person, I'm ready to submit, carry me to prison or to death. I will not resist, but I will never betray the Church of Christ." I will not call upon the people to protect me. I will die at the foot of the altar rather than desert it. Hmm. And so putting his life on the line, she knew that she couldn't get away with um, uh, enforcing uh, the decree, especially when the uh, the troops that she had sent to enforce the decree uh, wound up inside the Catholic Church, praying along with the Catholics. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was little hope for her enforcing the decree. So right, she, right. She, she she completely backed down at that point um, and died soon afterwards. And uh, um, and that uh, she the last major proponent, especially from the political position of of pushing the agenda of Arianism, was gone. Um, and so the um, the victory was complete in that regard. Right. And, and now Ambrose, um, this is not the only time when he he showed very um, very great courage. Um, in, in the face of real threat, um, there was an, another difficult confrontation that came later on um, with Emperor Theodosius, right? Yes. Um, yes. So it, now Theodosius, um, on the other side of this, you had uh, Justina, who was a, the, as an Arian, kind of an enemy of, of Ambrose. Uh, but Theodosius was the first emperor to... Um, to declare, or at least at least try, uh, to make Rome a Christian empire. Um, I was uh, mm -hmm. Constantine made it legal, but Theodosius wanted to make it official, right? The the right. Um, state religion, if you will. Um, <clears throat> but even even he ended up in a conflict with Ambrose. So um, so talk to us about that because this this to me is one of the most fascinating stories, and and I think it has. Uh, very far-reaching implications at the time. So uh, what happened between Ambrose and Theodosius uh, that caused this kind of standoff? Yeah, there, there were a couple of things that are kind of prelude to this, too. Um, uh, Theodosius had, um, um, he had, they had a very warm and cordial relationship with Ambrose. And so there was there was personal relationship there, which was, um, which was important to them. Um, there were some practices in the East that were different from the West. And, and in some ways, um, uh, for, for example, the emperor was allowed into various parts of, of the sanctuary and church for church service for the Eucharist, uh, which should essentially be reserved for the priest. And um, so he kind of tried to assert that right or that you know, not knowing any different. And uh, Ambrose um, basically pulled him out and said, you know, there's a difference between um, – the purple robes of of the emperor and the priestly robes. You know, there's a division here between our various roles. And uh, he, he was very humble, and he accepted that correction. 
you know, recognizing that things were done differently in the East um, than they had than they were in the West, um, and partly because there was a cozy relationship that uh, emperors enjoyed with Aryan bishops because of that uh, political influence. Um, but you know, coming from the Trinitarian perspective and, and Nicaea, Ambrose had a, a different separation with the idea of, of, of the authority of the church and the authority of the state. So the, the big conflict they had is that in, in Thessalonica, there was a very popular um, charioteer, and um, he um, um, committed a sexual offense, sexual assault, uh, and the governor put him in put him in jail, put him in prison the night before a major chariot race. And the people weren't happy about it. This, this sounds like, you know, you could be reading the story today. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the star, <laughs> the star athlete on academic probation kind of the, you know, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yes. Okay. Well, far um, more a, serious than that, but yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so the people, the people were not, the people rebelled. They uh, they got him out of prison and they killed the governor and a few other mm. of the soldiers. And so uh, Theodosius was not happy, and uh, sent instructions to the soldiers that when um, when people arrived at the circus for the next games, um, to lock the doors and kill them all. Mm-hmm. And so they did, and they slaughtered seven thousand men, women, and children um, on that day. Um, he, he actually sent another message revoking his initial order, but they got there too late. And so he had, he'd killed, you know, seven, had 7,000 men, women, and children killed. And, um, and then after that became known, I mean, very, obviously a very public, uh, public crime, um, came to church and Ambrose wouldn't let him in, um, because he, because he was unrepentant. Um, sent him a private letter, sent him a confidential letter, um, which, you know, if, if 1800 years later we have the contents of a private letter, um, don't ever think that anything you send via email is confidential <laughs> man, these days. <laughs> but it, he wrote him a letter and said, uh, a very, very grieved voice and pastoral said, you know, what's been done at Thessalonica is unparalleled in the memory of man. Your human and temptation has overtaken you. Overcome it, I counsel, I beseech, I implore you to penance. You have so often been merciful and pardoned the guilty, have now caused many innocent perish. The devil wished to wrest from you the crown of piety, which was your chiefest glory. Drive him from you while you can. I write this to you with my own hand, that you also may read it alone. And Ambrose was requiring the emperor to submit to the very public in, in uh, penance, uh, which was the custom for notorious public sin, which is the sinner would dress in sackcloth and stand outside the church, um, begging intercession of those. And uh, Amber, uh, the, uh, Theodosius initially resisted, um, and finally, with a counselor, um, one of his counselors going back and forth with Ambrose. One story is that the counselor went to Ambrose, and Theodosius followed kind of closely behind, just to kind of listen to see what would happen. Um, but he did. He uh, he exactly did that for several months. Um, entered into penance for this sin, for this slaughter. And on Christmas Day of that year, um, that um, um, Ambrose brought him back into communion. So it was basically early church discipline, but it was the emperor. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, you know, this is, the, he could have had him banished or executed, um, but instead, yeah, he said he was the only bishop he'd ever met who was truly worthy of his office. 
uh, and submitted to that. Um, Augustine writes that the, the, the faithful entering the church uh, at the sight of the of the imperial majesty abasing himself were moved to tears. Um, but the, the beautiful thing about this, I mean, there's all sorts of implications with regards to the church and, and state, but in terms of personal um, pastoral relationship, that as Theodosius repented and was restored to fellowship within the context of the church, it also greatly restored their relationship. And when he died, um, uh, a few years later, he died in the arms of Ambrose. Yeah. Um, and, and Ambrose is part of his funeral um sermon, he says, he stripped himself of every sign of royalty and bewailed his sin openly in church. He and emperor was not ashamed to do the public penance, which lesser individuals shrink from. And to the end of his life, he never ceased to grieve for his error. Hmm. That's a beautiful picture of reconciliation yeah. uh, of, of, um, of Ambrose stepping into what was a very public <laughs> and very difficult circumstance. Um, but calling calling the emperor to public repentance and the emperor responding in that. Right. Um, but his strong stand against the emperor in, in that way also helped pave the way for the relationship of the church over the state in the Middle Ages, kind of set the stage for how those two would interact. Yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting to me in reflecting over that story how, um, you know, later in church history, you, you do have examples of, um, abuses either way when at different points in history you have the church kind of uh, exerting great authority over the state and sometimes that that does not go well it ends very badly uh, and then at other times the state exerting control over the church and that ends badly um, but it seems to me that there's such a valuable um, lesson in this and that is that um, the the key difference between the two was repentance Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's so it, this could have gone very, very differently. Um, <laughs> yes. Had had Theodosius refused. Right. Um, yes. And so the the only thing that could have brought peace to that situation was repentance. And I mean, why you talk about a life lesson. Right. I mean, that's such an important mm, yes. principle for for all of us to remember. Um, and it, it reminds me as well that the story of, you know, the prophet Nathan confronting King David. Yes. Um, that could have gone very differently. David was at a point where he could, he could choose to compound his sin yet again. Right. And, and try to resist Nathan who was calling him to repentance, but he responded with, you know, public repentance. And, and so there was some reconciliation, but it's just a, a such a, a profound insight into, um, so many other parts of church history, so many other parts of history that um, that could have gone differently had repentance been the response, right? Um, right. So it wasn't... Well, that, well that, that example with Nathan is a really good one, too, from the standpoint that um, neither Nathan with David or Ambrose with Theodosius had anything to gain hmm. from the situation, this is not a power move. It was not a political move. It was not uh, an assertion of you know, religious authority or opportunity, but it was the prophetic pastoral role of bringing someone to repentance. Right. right. So even the, even the kind of the, the purity of that in terms of the, uh, the, the pastoral work. Yeah. And, and seeing when, when you hear this story, uh, a lot of, a lot of writers comment, church historians comment and say that this, this, um, 
event um, between um, Ambrose calling Theodosius to repent uh, had a profound effect on changing the relationship between church and state. And and yes, I, I get where they're coming from, but that to me uh, is, it feels almost like such a cynical way of looking at that <laughs> event, you know, mm-hmm. um, th- that this really was not about politics. This was right. a, this was a pastor being a pastor. You know, this was, this was, um, Ambrose seeing that Theodosius's soul was in great danger. Right. And it, so, yeah, I agree with you completely. This is not a political move. This is not a power play. I think it was the term that you used and, and that just changes everything. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a really, really beautiful event. Um, but now we we do have to. I almost hate moving on from that event. That's, a, that's such a, a <laughs> fantastic story. Um, yes. But Ambrose um, was. A, I mean, he was a staunch defender of the faith against the Arians. He was he was very brave um, in in and compassionate in the way that he interacted with. Um, with the rulers uh, uh, at the time, including Theodosius. Um, he wrote pretty extensively, and, and still quite a few of his works are available today and, and widely read today. But we, we have to focus in, um, particularly with your expertise in music, let's, let's talk about his musical contributions to the church, because yes. that, that might be one of his most, if not the, the most uh, lasting contribution, perhaps. So... Um, so let's start with this one, uh, sort of a specific uh, question about his musical contributions. Talk to us about Ambrosian chant, because that, that obviously bears his name. Um, so let's start yes. with there. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, no problem. The, uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, Ambrosian chant, also sometimes called Melanie's chant, um, is um, it's a type of, of plain chant singing. And that's the more generic term for what we think with regards to like Gregorian chant. Um, but realistically there, there were, um, there were multiple, uh, families of chant that were being developed in various areas of, as, as the church spread. Uh, so there was, uh, there was what became Gregorian chant in the more Roman area. Um, there was a, you know, there was a Spanish version. There was a, a, a version in Gaul. There was a, um, um, serum chant that comes out of, uh, out of the area around Salisbury. Um, and so what, um, what Ambrosian chant is, is the area, um, particularly around Milan and, uh, that came out of the writings and the ideas of, of Ambrose particularly. So there's, there's two things, there's two things going on here. One is the, um, very specific music and ideas that we know that Ambrose said and did and wrote. Uh, versus what became Ambrosian chant, which is somewhat synonymous to the idea of Gregorian chant. Um, you know, Gregory did not write all the Gregorian chant. Ambrose did not write all the Ambrosian chant. Um, but some of the distinctive things about Ambrosian chant, and there are hundreds of hymns attributed to him, but really there's, we only know for sure, Augustine mentions four by name, mm-hmm. and, and there's probably another eight that we know for sure that he wrote. But he started a movement that then kind of bears his name. Um, but it's the only distinctive chant that was not subsumed by um, Gregory's reforms of, of codification of, of chant. And so as, as, as Gregory and the Scola Cantorum 
you know, as they began to collect and, uh, and codify all the various forms of chant that included Ambrosian chant, but Ambrosian chant remained distinctive. And there have been several attempts uh, over the last 1,500 years to impose um, Gregorian chant on Milan, and they've always resisted, such that finally the church decided that, fine, you know, you can keep, you can keep your distinctiveness. So from, from our ears, it's, it, sounds like, it sounds like what we think of with regards to plain chant. Um, there are some differences, uh, and part of the differences are the fact that there are a lot of variety um, in that Ambrosian chant can be short, it can be long, um, it can be uh, you know, rather formulaic, or it can be very um, more through composed, you know, just kinda, um, working with a text. Um, it tends to have um, more stepwise motion, so it has a kind of a smoother, more kind of undulating, wave-like feel. Um, so there's, there are fewer fewer jumps, um, and there are some differences with regards to range of the notes. Uh, but it's very similar. It's very similar to what we think of with regards to Gregorian chant, with these few distinctive elements. But more than anything, just the sense of pride and place around Ambrose and around Milan. Now, um, describe sort of the the role that it played or its, or its its usage was uh was this form of chant uh developed um predominantly for um what we'd call maybe service music or was it congregational singing or was it um so it was that the role that it played was it um in developing congregational singing because i know ambrose certainly uh was right. very influential in that Right. It, primarily, it has to do with um, yeah, service type of music. Um, at the same time, though, he was also uh, bringing the ideas of, of hymnody to the West. Um, hmm. the, the Western Church primarily had been singing psalms, and with his uh, with his knowledge of Greek and with his reading of the Greek brothers and the Greek sources, um, the idea of of um, of hymns espousing theological truth, especially teaching theological truth in the, in the face of, of Arianism. Uh, he brought that idea into, um, into the West and specifically into Milan. And so that, that part of the you know, father of Western hymnody, um, that part specifically was the congregational aspect as well as the um, Ambrosian chant. But this is kind of the heart of how he revolutionized the use of the congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember I mentioned earlier, as they were barricaded in the Basilica with uh, Justina's troops around them that, that period between Psalm, Palm Sunday and Easter. Part of what they did in that week as they were fasting and praying is that he taught them um, the idea of antiphonal singing, uh, these, these more Eastern ideas. Instead of responsive singing, uh, which was more typical in the West, there'd be a single person who would sing something, there would be a response. Mm-hmm. Antiphonal is, is divided between groups and singing back and forth. And so as they were, you know, biding their time, um, waiting to see what was going to happen, he taught them antiphonal singing, uh, which included the women, which was kind of a question of the day about what role should women have in, in singing and in, in worship, primarily because of, of um, uh, association of, with female choruses and pagan worship. Um, but as including the women, antiphonal singing, um, but he taught them also melodies that he'd written as well and lyrics, which were you know, sim- simple, direct to the point, had a strength to them, 
uh, and had a had a metropole um, rhyming um, aspect to them, so they would be they would be easily known uh, and and learn theology. So this was this was uh, somewhat common in the East, but it was relatively unknown in the Latin West. And part of this is because of his ability to read the Greek sources right. and to bring these ideas to bear. And so then that gave his um, that gave his people his congregations the opportunity to sing together and to be uh, participants in the worship and to sing theological truth. So there's, as far as how that carries over into uh, later developments of, the, of, of church music, there's really, there's not a whole lot that we, that we don't owe to, to St. Ambrose in, in some respect, right? When it comes to church music. Um, right. Yes. Between yeah, the, the singing, yeah, congregational singing and and being the father of, of hymnody as we think of it and the mm -hmm. uh, antiphonal singing that um, it's a very important contribution. One, um, one question that I that I did that I do wonder about when you mentioned the antiphonal singing as opposed to responsive singing, um, how did that affect or, or did it affect uh, church architecture? Um, you know, I, <laughs> I know you see a lot of a lot of older churches now, it particularly in the Western tradition designed with like the split choir lofts mm -hmm. um, or, and, and I guess you don't see it quite as much anymore, but it, that used to be pretty common. Was that uh, where you have the choir lofts half facing the other half of the choir, right? And uh, was that part of antiphonal singing? Is that why that developed? There's a beautiful um, relationship between um, architecture and church music. And in, uh, in terms, some of it's kind of chicken and egg type of situation. Hmm. Um, you know, there are ways in which uh, architecture influenced composers to think differently about music. There are ways in which um, um, the needs of music influenced how buildings were designed. So there's a very interesting symbiotic relationship between the two. Um, but yeah, that, that idea of having side to side um, to the antiphonal aspect back and forth. Uh, but that, that's you know you can also do front and back and so yeah other other yeah. other ways as well. But that, that that yeah that idea of the split chancel does have that built in. Well, this this conversation has has really shed a lot of light to me on why Saint Ambrose, as as that one writer said, is considered the most talented bishop of the early church, um, <laughs> the, a, a brave man, defender of the faith, and um, we're we're still kind of enjoying uh the fruits of his labor um particularly in the, in the world of church music um um so as as we close this this episode do, um do you have any any favorite writings or favorite uh stories about about St. Mm -hmm. Ambrose that you want to share as we part and then uh, kind of a second part of that um Anything that you would recommend to listeners about learning more about his contributions or, or work? Yeah, this a couple of things. Um, you know, when you when you read Augustine's Confessions, we haven't even talked about Augustine briefly. Um, you know, Augustine was so um, even as um, before he came to Christ was was Ambrose's rhetoric was so well known that he came to Milan just to hear Ambrose preach. Not because he cared what he had to say, but how he said it. Hmm. Uh, and it was there that he re began to really hear the gospel in a, in a distinct way. And so when, when, it, when Augustine is talking in the Confessions about how I did weep at thy hymns and canticles, he's talking about 
what Ambrose was doing in worship and, and music in the church. Um, and there's a there's a wonderful apocryphal story in which um, when Ambrose baptizes Augustine as they rise from the water, they, they spontaneously uh, sing back and forth the words to the Te Deum, uh, praise the O Lord. That's that's a not a unfortunately not a true story, but a beautiful story, uh, nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's um, so some that, of the, that, some uh, of the best stories aren't aren't <laughs> true and and don't have to be, you know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I think it's, it's fascinating too that we still sing Ambrosian lyrics too. Um, o splendor of God's glory, bright. Uh, being one of them, come Redeemer, uh, come Thou Redeemer of the Earth, uh, another one. So that even you know, his, his influence, not only in how we sing, but also that we still sing uh, his actual uh, his actual texts. Um, one of the things that I appreciate uh, from the standpoint of um, of um, enjoying the quadrivium and the idea of um, music of the spheres and the great dance is that uh, he picked up those same ideas of cosmic harmony. And uh, that the idea that God's cosmos is harmonious and musical in a very fundamental sense, um, and embraced that, but with a Christian interpretation. So he'd taken those Greek musical ideas and um, um, and translated those into the context of the church, and wrote about that, and wrote about how those elements meet together in a dance. Uh, so that all those all that beautiful idea of music of the spheres and the quadrivium, and um, it's very much still part of what he's thinking about and writing about uh, with regards to music. But I think there's um, um, one of my favorite um, one of my favorite things. Um, one of my favorite stories is uh, um, that when Augustine left and uh, and went to Rome, that um, in, in Milan Saturday was was traditionally a festive day, but Saturday was traditionally a fast day in Rome. And um, so when when Augustine asked Ambrose what to do, uh, Ambrose wrote back to him and said, "When in Rome." Do as the Romans do, hmm. and so that that I, when in Rome idea um, being right. being gracious and uh, uh, within the context in which you are. Um, incidentally, he died on the eve of Easter, um, having completed uh, Good Friday um, services, and uh, between sometime between Good Friday and Holy Saturday, uh, passed away in three seven uh, three ninety seven. So it's kind of beautiful bookend of of being ordained in the uh, beginning of Advent and then um, passing into death and resurrection um, right right as right before Resurrection Sunday. Wow. Yeah. Well, Greg Wilbur, thank you so much. This has been a, a great conversation. I appreciate you um, taking the time to shed some light on the uh, life and work of St. Ambrose. Um, so appreciate you joining me today. Certainly my pleasure. Thanks so much. Well, thanks to all of you for joining us for this episode of The Commons. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. Uh, make sure and tune in next time for episode three. I'll be joined by obviously familiar guest, Wes Callahan, who was also the guest on episode one. But you don't want to miss this interview. We're going to be talking about the Cappadocian Fathers. Uh, so stay tuned for that next week, episode three. In the meantime, you guys have a great day, and we will talk to you again soon. Music